Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. So I really thought going into January 2021, I was going to churn out a few episodes and get a real good start to the year for the show. Well, it's been about six weeks since I published my last episode, and that went out the window. I was one of the National Guardsmen activated to go to the U.S. Capitol, so that was a few weeks during which I got absolutely no work done, and then it just took me a while to kind of get back in the swing of things. But I finally finished this episode, though, so here we are. Now that we have wrapped up the two main Eurocentric campaigns, the Mediterranean and the Eastern Fronts, for 1943, I figured we could turn our gaze to the two ancillary campaigns to those, the Air War and the U-Boat War. Ancillary might not be the best word for these, because I don't mean to degrade their importance or the stakes, only that they took place alongside the major land campaigns and in support of them. In this episode, we'll cover the bombing campaign in Europe, which began as early as 1940, but didn't really get into gear until 1943. According to its architects, the air campaign was an effort to do no less than defeat Nazi Germany through sheer explosive destruction. To land commanders, and others, was seen as a way to supplement the ground campaigns. What it ended up being was probably something in between. To find out, let's begin episode 39, The Bomber Barons. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? The concept of mass strategic bombing found its beginning all the way back in 1918, when the RAF managed to drop several hundred tons of bombs on German rear areas. Though paltry compared to the sheer weight of armament that could be dropped in a single mission during the Second World War, the bombing raids of the First World War proved to be a proof of concept. A concept that some strategic thinkers, prophets even, would expound on to its extreme end. These prophets of air power would eventually include Air Marshal Bomber Harris and General Hap Arnold, the commanders of the RAF and U.S. Army Air Force, but their inspiration drew from the OG of air power, Julio Duhay. During 1921, Duhay published his seminal work, Command of the Air, in which he outlined the ideas that would become the raison d'etre of the U.S. Air Force and the RAF during the Second World War. He believed that, through air power, Nations could directly attack their enemies' economies and their populations, bypassing their ground forces and devastating their ability to make war. He essentially predicted the end of the defense. He would continue to develop his ideas throughout the 1920s and publish subsequent editions, which further expounded on his ideas of air power. At the same time Duhay was developing his grand theory of air power, 
the Royal Air Force and its leadership was developing an actual air fleet. The grandfather of the RAF, Sir Hugh Trenchard, had similar ideas as far back as 1918, when he wrote that the key targets should be industrial centers and the workers themselves to achieve the maximum material and morale damage on the enemy's war-making capacity. He, like Douay, had seen that air power could be a powerful tool, but also that it necessitated total war. The idea that wars between nations are not just fought between their militaries, but between their entire societies, which comes with the assumption that all targets are legitimate targets. Ironically, the absolute confidence the prophets of air power had in their bombers led to them being somewhat restrained. By the onset of the Second World War, all the major combatants, at least in Europe, were so terrified of the effects of strategic bombing that no one wanted to be the first to do it and so unleash the wrath of the enemy's air force on their own populations. Of course, countries that could not retaliate were not extended the same courtesy. Hitler had no qualms about sending the Luftwaffe over Warsaw or Rotterdam, since there was no Dutch or Polish bombers to strike back at his own cities. He did, however, hesitate before sending bombers over the British population centers. Military targets were completely on the table, however. Up until the Battle of Britain, and even into it, Hitler did not want to break the unspoken pact not to attack population centers. Airfields, ports, rail yards, and other logistics nodes that could support military equipment were all considered legitimate targets, but deliberate terror bombing was not yet an option. With the Battle of Britain turning into a slog, Hitler needed to find a way to put those civilian targets on the table. Several excuses would manifest themselves. Due to the inaccurate nature of early bomber navigation technology, flights often found themselves wildly off course. During the battle for France, Luftwaffe bombers accidentally bombed Freiburg, which Hitler and Goering later blamed on the Allies to justify their own missions. Later, in late August 1940, in a raid over the London docks, the German bombs fell wide and destroyed a residential area, spurring the RAF to launch their own retaliatory raid on Berlin. This was all the excuse Hitler needed to attack British population centers, and from then on, strategic bombing could be carried out in earnest. Despite having the will to conduct major bombing campaigns, bomber forces were still far from maturity in early 1941. The Luftwaffe had no real strategic bomber program, and really just used tactical bombers in strategic bomber roles. The RAF, though it did have an actual strategic bomber program, was still not the juggernaut that was envisioned in the early 20s. Despite this, both the RAF and the Luftwaffe would undertake large strategic bombing missions in the early war in a series of retaliatory raids on one another. In November of 1940, on the anniversary of the Beer Hall Putsch, the RAF launched a raid against Munich with moderate success. In retribution, the Luftwaffe launched an effective raid against Coventry, that damaged or destroyed 60,000 buildings and killed nearly 600 people. In reprisal for that attack, the RAF flew against Mannheim, but missed their target, mostly bombing fields and farmhouses for roughly one-tenth the cost in lives and material. Thus far, the German Blitz was far outpacing the RAF's efforts to retaliate. From late 1940 to early 1941, as the Blitz drew down, acres burned in British cities far outpaced those in German cities, and RAF raids on German cities and industry proved almost counterproductive, as during some missions, more aircrew died than Germans were killed. This prompted Churchill to deem the RAF the premier service over the army and the navy in terms of sustenance. After the fall of France, 
there was very little the UK could do to strike back at Germany directly. The army was still fighting, but on far-off fronts, mostly against Japan. The navy was trying to hold together the sea lanes and was hunting down German battleships, but that would not impact Hitler's ability to generate combat power. Bomber command was Churchill's only way of reaching out and striking Germany itself. At that moment, however, in the words of Winston Churchill, Bomber Command was little more than a ramshackle air freight service exporting bombs to Germany. If Bomber Command was to actually fulfill its mission of striking Germany and making it hurt, it would need to overcome several challenges. First, its aircraft were not up to the job. They were too slow, flew too low, and didn't have nearly enough range to strike at the heart of Germany. The workhorses of early Bomber Command, the Hampton, Whitley, and Wellington bombers, performed admirably, but they simply were not up to the task. The mighty Halifax and Lancaster bombers would not appear until 1942, and only then could the RAF hope to begin punching at the German heartland. The second major difficulty RAF Bomber Command faced was their lack of escort fighters, which forced them to bomb at night in order to avoid horrendous losses during daylight raids. This then led to problems with navigation and actually finding their targets. Their inability to find point targets like factories, dams, and railroad hubs partly contributed to them going after area targets, like whole cities, and even that proved challenging. Finally, there was a distinct lack of aircraft and crews. All of these problems had to be corrected. Hence, the directive to give Bomber Command priority for manpower and production capacity. This would support the RAF's goal of reaching a 4,000-strong bomber force, up from a total strength of 700 bombers in flying condition. It would take years to even approach reaching this goal, so in the meantime, Bomber Command resigned itself to targeting the population centers that fed Germany's industry, as opposed to the industry itself. The plan wasn't simply to bomb the homes of workers to prevent Germany from finding labor for its factories. The theory was a little deeper than that. You could argue that the impetus behind the bombing was essentially a Marxist understanding of total war, and that the working class, the proletariat as a whole, was the target of the campaign. Now, don't get all reactionary on me just because I use the word Marxist. It doesn't mean I think the leaders of Bomber Command were communists. To say that they viewed their campaign through a Marxist lens is to say that they saw it through the lens of class distinction, or as a class-based strategy. On February 14, 1941, the air staff stated that operations, quote, should now be focused on the morale of the enemy civilian population, and in particular, that of its industrial workers, end quote. The officer class that ran Bomber Command were themselves acutely aware of the realities of social stratification, and their own biases toward their own working class likely played into their understanding. They believed that the industrial working class was the key to undermining the strength of German industry. If they could make life so unbearable through round-the-clock bombing, perhaps they could break the spirit and inspire revolution, similar to how the Tsarist state collapsed during the First World War. Obviously, there is some moral queasiness that comes with executing something like a bombing campaign directed explicitly at the working population. It is very easy for someone today to look back and say how wrong they think it was to target the civilian population. But in my opinion, that is intellectually lazy. The leaders of the RAF and the British nation had a tough decision to make. Sure, they could refuse to target population centers but then they would essentially be throwing away their one effective means of striking their enemy's ability to wage war. This was not a limited war with finite territorial or policy goals. This war was an existential threat to their very existence, as a free society. At least it looked that way to them. 
Hitler had every intention of invading the British Isles and occupying the country if they did not acquiesce. Would that be the greater moral good for the British nation? To surrender to Hitler and live in peace with Germany while he undertook a campaign of extermination against the Jewish and Slavic peoples of Europe? Somehow I think the bombing campaign was the lesser of two evils, by a very, very wide margin. In early 1942, Arthur Bomber Harris took over RAF Bomber Command, and he was absolutely ready to execute the RAF's bombing plan with unflinching determination. He would guide Bomber Command to the heights and the successes it would see later in the war, and oversee the development of navigational technologies and improve tactics that would greatly increase his force's effectiveness. The first of these technologies was GI. GI was a method of guiding aircraft to their targets using two sets of radar beams. By measuring the distance to the source of each beam, navigators could ab aboard the aircraft could determine their location. The system was imprecise did not work over very long ranges, but at least could get the formations over the Ruhr industrial area. The next major development was Oboe. Oboe was an aircraft-based radar system that gave the navigator a rendering of the land below the aircraft, allowing him to compare his image to the charts and give him another method of determining his location. Oboe was, however, not available in large numbers, so not every aircraft could be fitted with the device. In order to increase the effectiveness of the device, and navigation overall, Bomber Command implemented an organizational change. Special pathfinding squadrons would be organized that would fly ahead of the bomber wings to mark the locations for their bomb runs. The pathfinder crews would be composed of the cream of the bomber force to ensure they found their targets. Bomber Command was at first hesitant to implement the idea because they feared it would rob the regular formations of their best pilots, but the success of the program quickly justified the change. The Pathfinders, and their Mosquito Light Bombers, proved highly successful. As 1941 turned to 1942, Arthur Bomber Harris wanted to start scoring some successes against Germany. Thus far, there had been scatterings of smaller raids across Germany against both industrial targets and more traditional military targets, like naval facilities and U-boat pens. But Harris was keen on delivering a real gut punch to the Germans. Part of the problem impeding his success had been that his bombers were too lightly armed and their payloads were too small to really pack a punch, so he decided to concentrate them in mass not yet seen. In March of 1942, Bomber Command undertook a raid on the Paris Renault factory and scored considerable success. This gave Harris the confidence to attempt larger raids into Germany itself. The first of these occurred on the night of March 28th to 29th, 1942. The target was Lübeck, on the Baltic coast just south of Denmark. Lübeck was neither a particularly large nor mighty city, but it was vulnerable, precisely because it was not very big or important. Harris' goal was to overwhelm the city's defenses and utterly destroy it. Lübeck was the perfect target. Its old medieval wooden architecture rendered it vulnerable to incendiary attack, and its cultural importance as the old center of the Hanseatic League meant Germany would certainly take note of its incineration Finally, a successful raid would have the added bonus of giving Bomber Command a win to celebrate. The raid on Lübeck was a resounding success. The wooden structures of the city burned readily, and 95% of the bombers launched returned to base by the next morning. This success prompted Harris to direct further raids. Rostock, east of Lübeck on the Baltic coast, was next, and Bomber Command scored similar success there. 
These raids would not go unanswered, however. The Luftwaffe launched their tourist raids in April on Bath, Canterbury, Norwich, Exeter, and York. Though they delivered damage, the Luftwaffe's counterattacks didn't quite pack the same punch that the RAF was now able to deliver, and they certainly didn't measure up to what Bomber Command was getting ready to do next. In May, Bomber Command put the city of Cologne in its sights. Cologne lay right smack in the middle of the major Ruhr Industrial Valley, and a successful strike against it would certainly hamper German industrial capacity. Being such a vital industrial city, it was well protected, and Bomber Command would have to assemble the largest force yet seen. Harris had training units and every spare aircraft brought together for the mission, until he had over a thousand aircraft at his disposal. This would be the first thousand aircraft raid of the war, and would prove an effective method. The larger bomber formations meant not only more munitions were dropped, but also that they were more likely to hit their targets, since they left a bigger footprint. Adding to their deadliness was what they carried in their payloads. No longer were they packed with just high explosive, but a potent mix of smaller incendiary bombs alongside traditional HE at a ratio of 2 to 1. This increased their destructive potential substantially by starting chaotic firestorms, as well as simply blowing apart buildings. The Cologne raid was another critical success. The entire heart of the city was burned out, aside from its famous cathedral. 600 acres of medieval city were reduced to smoldering pile of rubble. By August of 1942, the U.S. 8th Air Force had entered the fray and was beginning daylight raids to complement the RAF's night attacks. Its first mission was against the marshalling yards at the port of Rowan, and it would continue to bomb mostly over France until 1943. The U.S. Army Air Force came with two critical pieces of equipment that allowed it to carry out daylight raids, the venerable B-17 Flying Fortress and the Norden Bombsite. The B-17 was a tough aircraft, studded with defensive machine guns, designed to allow it to fight its way to targets without escort aircraft. The Norden Bombsite was incredibly accurate, under ideal conditions anyway. This isn't to say that the Americans wouldn't suffer during their bombing campaign, though. Daylight raids still came with all of their inherent disadvantages, but the American commanders deemed them acceptable. Over the course of the next six months, the 8th Air Force under General Ira Eaker would grow to a strength of 500 aircraft. In 1943, the heavy bombing campaign would begin. But the RAF and the U.S. Army Air Force had finally grown in strength and experience. Thus far, Allied bombers had been a thorn in the side of the Germans, but now they would become a true threat. Sporadic bombing had at times disrupted their means of production. But now, the weight of strategic bombing would begin to force the Germans to make tough decisions. The stated goal of the combined Allied bombing campaign, codenamed Operation Point Blank, as laid out during the Casablanca Conference was, quote, the destruction and dislocation of the German military, industrial and economic system, and undermining the morale of the German people, end quote. More specifically, the priority targets for the Allies were submarine construction yards, aircraft factories, transportation infrastructure, oil plants, and general industry, in that order. The Allied forces would without a doubt commit themselves to achieving this goal, even if it proved more difficult than they initially estimated. Despite their attempts at nesting their goals with one another at the Casablanca Conference, the Allied air forces had different approaches to achieving them. Where the RAF Bomber Command sought to undermine German industry by displacing its workforce, the American Army Air Force sought to target choke points in German industry 
such as oil fields and ball bearing plants, alongside major industrial hubs and traditional military targets. As the U.S. was ramping up its bombing campaign and getting planes into theater, RAF Bomber Command was growing into the behemoth it desired to be. In March of 1943, they began the Battle of the Ruhr, a general aerial offensive against the German Industrial Corridor along the Ruhr Valley in western Germany. It began with a 400-plane raid against Essen. A month and a half later, the battle continued with Operation Chastise, a series of smaller raids targeting German dams in the region. The idea was to cause flooding downstream in the Ruhr and to destroy hydroelectric power sources. Number 617 Squadron, outfitted with Lancasters, was selected for the mission and outfitted with special bouncing bombs. On the night of 16 to 17 May 1943, the Myrna, Ader, Zorp, and Schwelmer dams were targeted, and two of them were destroyed. As spring gave way to summer, Bomber Command continued its offensive against German industry, and the U.S. Army Air Force joined in. Starting on the evening of July 24th, a series of four massive raids in 10 days against Hamburg was dispatched with nearly 800 planes. The RAF bombed at night, and the Americans bombed during the day, representing one of the first round-the-clock bombing raids over Germany. The Hamburg raid was also one of the first to utilize the H-2S navigation radar, as well as chaff, strips of aluminum foil dropped in the air to confuse enemy radar systems. The Hamburg raid was a resounding success. 8,600 tons of bombs were dropped, and 6,000 acres of the city were destroyed for a loss of only 87 bombers. This success owed partly to the weather conditions prevailing during the hot, dry summer of 1943. When the incendiary weapons began bursting and setting buildings alight, a firestorm grew out of it which engulfed the city. The bombing broke the city's water mains, and an enormous inferno over a mile wide created its own mini weather system, drawing in cool, oxygen-rich air from around the city, reaching sustained winds of 30 miles per hour. The interior of the blaze reached an incredible 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit and burned everything flammable. Only rubble remained when the fire eventually burned itself out, and 80% of the city laid in charred ruins. 30,000 people died in the attack. The success of the Hamburg raid prompted Bomber Command to undertake yet another, more daring raid, this time against Berlin in November of 1943. The raid on Berlin occurred on the night of 18-19 to 19 November, and consisted of 444 bombers. In addition, it was accompanied by a concurrent raid on Mannheim of 325 bombers, the first of the dual heavy raids of the war. The continued offensive against Berlin lasted until March of 1944, but was only marginally successful. 16 major raids were launched against the city in that time, but persistent problems with navigation sent many missions off course, limiting the amount of tonnage dropped on Berlin itself. Moreover, even when bombers found their target, Berlin was an exceptionally bomb-resistant city. Unlike many other German cities, which were essentially medieval in their construction and layout, with narrow streets and many old wooden buildings, Berlin was modern. It was mostly made of concrete, masonry, and brick, and had wide streets. This prevented firestorms from occurring, and made the buildings themselves more bomb-resistant. Along with extensive bomb shelters, the damage inflicted on Berlin itself was minimal, Civil life carried on in the city much as it had before the war, until well into 1945. Additionally, 
The RAF lost a total of 587 aircraft over the course of the operation and over 3,500 aircrew. The U.S. Army Air Force began to test their theory of air war on August 17, 1943, with the aptly named Operation Juggler on the ball bearing plant in Schweinfurt, Germany. Ball bearings being a key component in aircraft, U-boat, and tank production. They believed they could strike a devastating blow to several German production lines by destroying the factory. The plan for the raid called for deliberate timing and multiple bomb groups, as well as escort fighters to penetrate German air defenses in sequence. The idea was to launch a smaller 150-plane raid against the Messerschmitt factory in Regensburg, first escorted as far as Brussels by Spitfires, P-47s, and P-38s. These aircraft would hopefully draw the Luftwaffe's interceptor aircraft and pull them down to North Africa, where they were scheduled to land. Shortly after the Regensburg attack run began, the 240 aircraft destined for Schweinfurt would launch, as long as everything went according to plan. Allied planners believed that, if they timed it right, Luftwaffe interceptor aircraft would be returning to rearm and refuel just as the Schweinfurt raid was approaching its target. Unfortunately, it did not work out that way. Heavy fog the morning of the raid caused the Schweinfurt bombers to delay their takeoff by three and a half hours. This meant that, by the time they got airborne and were approaching their target, the German interceptors had plenty of time to recover for another sortie. Not only that, but the heavy activity over northwest Germany had drawn in even more fighter aircraft from the rest of the Reich. The raid was preparing to end in disaster. Although the American plan to target ball bearings did manage to achieve some strategic success, they paid a heavy toll for it. Yes, they did manage to disrupt the enemy's war production, where the Germans had other sources of ball bearings, so they were not ground to a screeching halt. The 8th Air Force would continue to target Schweinfurt throughout the war, and the factory would be hit many more times, but the return on investment shrank every time. Keep in mind, though, that the Schweinfurt raid took place in the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Kursk, when the Wehrmacht's need for replacement parts for its armor was at its greatest. Even a marginal disruption in German war production had a concrete effect on the Eastern Front. Every tank prevented from reaching the line due to production holdups was one less tank the Red Army would have to face in the East. The Schweinfurt raid, though it did not cripple ball-bearing production, prompted the German armaments ministry to disperse its production to prevent something like a Schweinfurt raid from halting a key production line. The Regensburg bombers had suffered heavily already, losing 24 aircraft to the enemy. Now, the Schweinfurt bombers would face a similar fate. When the first formation of 60 bombers of the Schweinfurt run arrived over Belgium, it was greeted with waves of German fighters. By the time they reached Schweinfurt itself, at around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they had already lost 28 aircraft either shot down or forced to turn back. Of the 240 bombers dispatched to bomb the ball bearing plant, only 183 actually made it over the target to deliver their payload. In total, 36 aircraft never returned. 19 more were so damaged that they had to be pulled off the line. Daylight raids were quickly attriting the American bomber force. Without long-range escort fighters, the B-17s and B-24s were forced to fly over Europe exposed to Luftwaffe interceptors. In theory, the B-17 was supposed to be able to fend for itself with its impressive armament, but in practice, they were still dangerously vulnerable to enemy fighters. In some raids, the AAF was sustaining 33% attrition rates, an amount completely unsustainable. In a raid over Kiel in June of 1943, 
22 bombers of 60 were shot down. In August, in a raid over the Palesti oil fields in Romania, 54 of 177 aircraft were lost. Then, there were the Schweinfurt raids, which continued until October of 1943, during which 62 aircraft of 228 never returned to base. The cost in lives and aircraft inflicted on the American bomber forces in the summer and fall of 1943 proved to be so costly that the 8th Air Force ceased deep penetration bombing operations for five weeks until they could recover and get some escort fighters allocated. The Luftwaffe pilots were deadly because they knew what they were doing. They often gathered their formations into one large attack, rather than go after the bombers piecemeal. They would wait until the bomber formations were approaching their targets, so that they could not perform evasive maneuvers, which throw them off their targets. And they would often attack the lead bomber first, who would be responsible for dropping its payload, first to signal to the rest of the formation that the bomb run had begun. The Messerschmitt Bf-109s that made up the backbone of the Luftwaffe fighter force were tough, dependable aircraft that the Germans were continually revising to make them more deadly. Though early on, the aircraft were armed with relatively light 7.62 machine guns. But by the mid-war, they were mostly armed with 20mm cannons, which could absolutely shred bombers. In addition, the Luftwaffe experimented with towed bombs and dropping small bombs on the bombers. Nighttime bombers were not safe from interceptors either. The Germans quickly learned to use radar to detect incoming formations and guide their aircraft to interdict them. Teams of radar-equipped and non-radar-equipped night fighters were created and guided to their targets. Searchlight crews on the ground would illuminate the bombers and allow the fighters to do their deadly work. The RAF, of course, developed countermeasures like chaff, but these were quickly accounted for and overcome by the Germans. The Allied need for a weapon system to counter the effectiveness of the Luftwaffe was clear. Thus, the P-51 Mustang was born. It was the arrival of the Mustang, the escort fighter par excellence, that signaled the beginning of the end of the Luftwaffe. Even when attacking unescorted bomb groups, the Luftwaffe was suffering high casualties. But around February 1944, when the Mustangs began arriving in large numbers, German attrition rates went way up. In January, 1,300 aircraft were lost, but when they began engaging escorted bombers, their losses almost doubled to 2,100 in February of 1944. Despite the fact that the Luftwaffe was able to make good their losses in terms of production, they were not able to make up for the loss of their most skilled pilots in the massive aerial battles that took place over Europe in early 1944. 8th Air Force commanders understood the success they were having too, and planned raids around luring in large numbers of German interceptors in order to shoot down as many as they could. By 1945, the Luftwaffe would be a shell of its former self, with many of its most experienced pilots lost to battle. During 1944, German wartime production would have to change significantly and alter itself to survive in the new reality it faced. Aerial offensives would never achieve the level of outright domination that its proponents once preached, but it would force German industrial planners to significantly restructure their efforts and cause them to decentralize as much as possible. The Ruhr Valley that proved so compelling a target in 1942 was essentially abandoned. Light industry was dispersed into the hinterland or further east. Workers were moved to underground cellars or to bomb-proof bunkers or scattered around the countryside themselves. Germany almost completely decentralized its industrial capacity barring only those industries which are tied to geographic features, like mines, 
or which are not easily relocated, like steel. As a testament to the effectiveness of industrial decentralization, the Luftwaffe actually received as many aircraft in 1944 as it had in 1942 and 43 combined. 1944 would be the big year for the bombing campaign, and when the tide truly shifted. The introduction of the P-51 moved the balance of air superiority to the Allies, and the sheer weight of numbers of Allied aircraft made for larger and more frequent raids. When we come back to the bombing campaign, we'll have Big Week in February of 1944, and Allied bombing preparations for D-Day, when the weight of American bombs fell upon regional infrastructure. We still have some ground to cover before we get there, though. <laughs>